go. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Self-Care Forum podcast. My name is Dr. Cedric Batratu, your host for the hour. Here, we bring you knowledge to empower you uh, to address the root cause of disease. Our goal is simple, to interest you in the care of the human frame in diet and the cause and prevention of disease. Today, we're joined by none other than Dr. Stanley Ikezi. Dr. Ikezi is an anesthesiologist and double board certified pain management specialist. He's the founder of New York City Pain Relief Medicine with an office located in Queens, New York. Uh, Dr. Ikezi completed the ACGME accredited pain medicine fellowship program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, a top 10 hospital in the nation. Additionally, he owns a master's degree in business administration with a concentration in healthcare management. Dr. Ikezi keeps up to date with advancements in pain medicine. He employs new cutting edge treatments that have been clinically proven to relieve pain. He also incorporates multimodal strategies, minimally invasive therapies and spinal implantable devices to improve his patients functionality and overall quality of life. Dr. Ikezi, I want to thank you for joining us on here on the Self-Care Forum podcast. How are you, sir? Hi, thank you so much. Thanks for the introduction. The um, once again, Dr. Stanley Ikezi, uh, thanks Cedric for the brief introduction. Um, I'm a pain management specialist, born in Nigeria, uh, did my training here in the States and in New York, as well as at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I've been a physician for the past 13 years so far. Uh, so I come with wealth of experience in managing patients with chronic pain. I'm also an anesthesiologist as well. So my, my main foundation is anesthesia and my subspecialty certification is in the treatment of chronic pain using multimodal approach, interventional therapies, um, et cetera. So I manage all types of pain, name it from, from headache, back pain, neck pain, knee pain, shoulder pain. Um, so pretty much wherever you have pain, um, you know, I'm, I'm capable and able to manage those areas of pain. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us once again, doctor. I'm just curious. Uh, this is something I usually ask all my guests because I always like to pick their brains and see what inspired them uh, to begin their journey into healthcare. So you were born in Nigeria, you came here, you went to school here. Along that, uh, you know, along that journey, what was it uh, about your upbringing or maybe your circumstances that inspired you uh, to pursue medicine in the first place? Well, my, up, my, 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 my interest in medicine started from growing up as a kid and just witnessing the healthcare system in, in Nigeria, um, I've had relatives, family members who were ill in Nigeria and um, the care which was provided at a particular time was substandard, was not up to par. Um, so th that interest grew further when I came to the States. Uh, um, in addition to my interest in the sciences, math and science, uh, that also cultivated my interest in treating patients uh, we have healthcare issues and uh, particularly pain. My interest in pain stemmed from my, my dad, you know, may he so rest in peace. Um, he had chronic pain issues for several years before he passed away. Um, I was, um, that's how he had spinal cord injury. So chronic pain issues, neuropathic pain, uh, 
um, somatic pain. So th that's where my interest started uh, in pain management from, you know, residency to my fellowship training. I see. And so right now at your current practice at the current clinic in Queens, what sort of pain, uh, what sort of um, treatments do you generally offer? I offer a wide variety of treatments. So patients, the patients that come to me, come to me with chronic pain concerns, acute or chronic pain concerns. So neck pain, back pain, particularly neck and back pain, but also they have shoulder pain, knee pain, hip pain. Uh, so the treatments that we offer, um, uh, when it comes to treatment, I offer like multimodal approach. So when I say multimodal approach, I mean, I do things from, you know, in, from conservative treatment up to minimally invasive therapies. So this includes, uh, you know, injections, spinal injections, nerve blocks, um, you know, we do some cortisone injections. We do some, we also do, I do uh, spinal implants for patients with chronic pain issues. Uh, spinal implants, also known as neuromodulation, which are electrodes that we implant in patients' spine, and that helps control and modulate pain. Um, I also do some minimally invasive spine procedures, uh, minimally invasive joint fusion procedures um, in the operating room that helps patients with uh, back pain, spinal stenosis, um, SI joint pathologies. Wow, multimodal indeed. So it sounds like, um, you know, you have your hands full with the different uh, services that you offer. You mentioned conservative, uh, you know, conservative pain management approach. For those who are, say, you know, who don't want uh, a particular surgery or don't want an invasive procedure, what sort of options do you offer them? So these options uh, include physical therapy. Uh, so for those patients who don't want invasive procedures, uh, you know, we, we the, the first approach is physical therapy. So mm -hmm. physical therapy typically helps eliminate at least, I'd say at least 50% of the pain. With, good, wow. with a good physiotherapist, <clears throat> with a good physical therapist, and also with a, I also provide my patients with exercise regimen. So physical therapy, a solid exercise, structured exercise regimen, which I instructed my patients to perform on a daily basis, that helps a great deal. In addition to some supplemental oral analgesics, such as, you know, you could say Motrin, uh, prescription-based Motrin, uh, muscle relaxants. Um, sometimes I institute other modalities using durable medical equipments. So durable medical equipment are like, it's like back braces, knee brace, shoulder brace. Uh, bracing helps to help in like immobilize the region uh, as in this case, perhaps maybe the spine. So there's not so much pressure on the disc itself. So patients who have back pain and they use a knee brace, they use a back brace, I'm sorry, back brace. That helps, especially when they're doing strenuous activities helps immobilize the spine and remove pressure off the spine. Mm. And that actually helps quite a bit. So we're not talking about, you know, the type of pain that you put an icy hot pad on, right? We're talking about like a chronic, a more chronic form of pain, correct? Yes, we're talking about a more chronic form of pain. Um, so chronic, chronic pain is defined as pain that persists greater than three months. Mm -hmm. So when 
patients have pain that's not relieved with over-the-counter analgesics or any sort of you know exercise regimen um then they've for more than three months now they've gone into they're into the territory of chronic pain uh chronic pain can also be seen after surgery so patients that's had they've had knee surgery shoulder surgery and they're still having pain after three months now they've hit that chronic pain category and that's a bulk of my patients those chronic pain patients mm-hmm. and wow. by the way chronic pain is not as different from managing a patient with high blood pressure or diabetes as this you know these patients become chronically my patients and i have to see them every i see them quite frequently every three, two to three months or so to help manage their pain and help lead them into the right path as to you know what their goals are and what and, and i always set expectations what the expectations in terms of pain because when people when my patients come to me they are expecting a quick fix and i try to mm-hmm. encourage educate them that you know it's it's a process and part of that process doesn't necessarily end with them coming to my office you know when they go home they also have to be proactive as to what they do in terms of their care so particularly looking into things like physical therapy home exercise and also water therapy so water aerobics is actually a big deal when it comes to chronic managing patients with chronic pain interesting and I like that you mentioned that you guys discuss, you discuss with your patients their expectation uh, for pain management, because for, for, for myself, uh, for example, you know, when I think about pain, it's either you have it or you don't. So I often approach, or when I look at chronic pain, I often think either you're going to get a procedure that's going to take it away uh, permanently uh, or for a long-term period, or you know, you're, you're going to struggle with the pain, but it sounds to me like it's a process that you're going to work on for uh, an extended period of time and gradually get to a point where it's not, uh, you know, uh, inhibiting them from their daily activities. Am I right? Is that a correct understanding? Yes, it's a correct understanding. It is a process. So, uh, and I try to out, outline the entire process from the big, from the first time I do a consultation with a patient and I also like to set expectations. And my expectations are geared towards functionality. So in other words, when a patient comes to see me in the first visit, I always ask towards the end of the visit, so what's your goal? What would you like to do that you haven't been able to do because of your pain concerns? Mm-hmm. And that goal has to be focused on functionality. So what I, what I mean by functionality, I mean that, okay, it's patients who say, oh, you know, Doc, you know, in the past three to six months, I've not been able to, you know, carry my granddaughter or play with my kids. And so to them, that's a big deal. So my treatment would be focused on, so each time they see me, I would always go back and ask those questions. So how are you doing now in terms of being able to play around with your grandkids and et cetera? Has your pain improved? Or some patients have complained of, you know, they want to sleep better. And they, they haven't been able to sleep better at night because of chronic pain. So I focus on, okay, let's focus on managing your pain so that you should be able to sleep better and improve your daily, you know, routine the next, you know, the next day. Wow. Well said. And funny enough, uh, statistics show that one third of American adults 
uh, actually suffer from chronic chronic pain. So, you know, in your experience, is it a common thing? Do you commonly get people coming in, you know, and, and, and complaining about chronic pain or is it more so skewed towards, let's say an older audience? Well, it's, it's, it's all variable. It's old, young, um, but I would say on average, I would say around, it ranges between those in their mid twenties to those to, pay, to patients in around seventy five to eighty five years old, so you know, patients suffering from pain it's it's a big it's a big healthcare cost, especially with the younger population. Mm-hmm. The younger population getting injured at work, they're taking time off from work, <clears throat> so it puts a stress on the workforce. It puts you know there's you know the the the, the employer or you know, the the, the insurance company has to make you know payments for their care, especially when it comes to you know work-related injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a big deal for these patients, and oftentimes, you know, the younger patients that are working have to take time off from work to get certain types of treatment, um, and that causes somewhat significant disability. And I've seen patients actually have to young patients have to go on disability because of chronic pain issues from work-related injuries or otherwise that has not been resolved over time. Now, what comes to mind when I often think about chronic pain is the use and abuse of opioids. I think right now it's, it's actually an epidemic in this country, you know, Percocets, um, you know, all these different oxycontins, oxycodones. So the country currently faces an opioid crisis. And I think that's largely due to the fact that uh, for a time, doctors were being very generous and they were overprescribing these opioids, um, these narcotics. So, you know, for someone who may be listening and they're struggling with, um, you know, uh, some sort of addiction with this, um, what advice would you give them um, what steps would you tell them to take uh, going forward? Should they talk to their doctor? You know, how should, how should they proceed? I think the best way to proceed is to have, a, have an open discussion with your primary care physician or um, if you have a pain specialist uh, or have your primary care physician refer you to a pain specialist. And in my practice, I don't manage patients with addiction However, I do work with, I could refer patients to, um, to someone, to a physician who manages, uh, you know, addiction. Now there are subspecialty physicians within pain management that manage patients with addiction. And there are drugs that we can give these patients to help them, you know, take them off the narcotics and put them on something else that's non-addicting or perhaps get them off completely on all medications, um, especially in this case where, you know, it's not really needed because actually studies have shown that the use and or the utility of opioids long-term in patients who have non-malignant pain. And when I say non-malignant pain, I mean non-cancer pain. So patients Mm -hmm. who don't have any sort of cancer. So taking opioids uh, giving patients opioids who do not have cancer-related pain uh, has more serious consequences and uh, than patients. You know, in other words, it's not indicated in patients who have just 
chronic non-cancer pain, non-cancer mm-hmm. pain. And this was a study from the CDC. So um, this was actually a couple of years ago, 2000, I believe 2019 or so. So there have been a big debate on opioids and prescribers and how we, especially us being pain physicians, taking patients off, um, you know, having a set dose for these patients who have not, who don't have cancer or gradually winning them off opioids entirely. Yes, and I think you you even see this with the firestorm that has been given with, um, you know, uh, companies like Purdue Pharma and, you know, their contributions to, uh, I believe the family that owns them, the Sackler family actually lost a lawsuit, um, you know, just for the, the prescribing or over-prescribing tactics that uh, they, they uh, employed. Now, let's switch gear a little bit. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, this stigma or this stereotype uh, that persists. Um, there was an interesting thing that there was an interesting study that showed that uh, up to 40% of first and second year uh, Caucasian medical students, they actually held a belief that Black people had a greater tolerance of pain. Um, I don't know if you're, you've ever heard or come across this, um, this study, but uh, yeah, up to 40% of first and second year white medical school students believe that Black people had a greater tolerance for pain than you know, white Americans. In your opinion, what do you think causes this view and how does it affect care for patients of color that are looking for pain management? Yes, that, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, they, there's this bias, intrinsic bias regarding uh, not just, particularly actually uh, Blacks or African-Americans um, seeking pain medication, opioids, uh, to manage pain, irrespective of the level of their pain. So, and we see this a lot in the emergency room. And, you know, we also see it in, uh, you know, in a pain practice where uh, African-Americans or Blacks are being stigmatized as, you know, opioid seeking, um, irrespective of the level of their pain. So, there's actually been a head-to-head study about this where, you know, uh, the, the white counterpart, the white male counterparts are seen as being, you know, having more, having more pain and actually given the necessary pain medication versus the black and our counterpart and our patients uh, with the same level of pain. Um, I also have to say that when it comes to, just to add on to what you mentioned, Cedric, uh, when it comes to neighborhoods, there are certain neighborhoods, certain pharmacies in certain neighborhoods where they don't stock, they have a limited stock of pain medication. So in neighborhoods with lower socioeconomic class, uh, the poor neighborhoods, um, unfortunately, a lot of African-Americans fall into that neighborhood. The, stock, the, the stocking of opioids in, at those pharmacies is much, much lower than other pharmacies um, where there's a greater population of affluent white, you know, white, white patients. Wow. And of course, that's going to affect care. That's going to affect, you know, access to some of these, uh, you know, medications, especially for those who genuinely have a need for, for them. 
Uh, wow. So you mentioned earlier that you do work with physical therapy for those who, you know, opt for a minimally invasive or non-invasive process of, of pain treatment, pain management. Um, in addition to working with a physical therapist, you know, what are some other ways that uh, you cooperate with patients um, not involving the use of medications? What are some other things that, uh, you know, you uh, uh, encourage patients to do? So in addition to physical therapy and, of course, a structured home exercise regimen, mm -hmm. uh, I also encourage patients to get engaged in swimming. Believe it or not, swimming has been shown to reduce uh, episodes of, you know, acute and chronic pain in a chronic pain population. Mm -hmm. um, I also encourage patients to just maintain an active lifestyle overall. Um, the more you sit and around and don't, don't move much, the more pain you have at the end of the day. So moving around, increasing mobility, um, sometimes may be painful, um, but over time, it actually helps um, with managing your chronic pain and improves your mobility. Um, the other thing I also encourage patients to do is what I call the distraction phenomenon. So, I encourage patients to engage themselves in things that distracts them. So oftentimes there's a close association between pain, anxiety, and depression. Um, and studies have actually shown that most, a lot of chronic pain patients have an element of anxiety or depression. So when you encourage these patients to engage in things that they love doing or uh, things that brings them some sort of joy, it helps, it, it helps distract them away from their pain and it helps them live a happier and healthier lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So doing something that you enjoy, you sort of ignore or forget about the pain being there to begin with, correct? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Thank you for that, Doc. So when you, when you try to cut you up or when you are more, when you are sort of isolated, not doing things that you enjoy, you... You are, you're, you're not focused on an activity that you enjoy. Over time, your mind focuses more on actual pain, physical pain itself. Mm -hmm. um, so focusing on that, when your mind focuses on that physical pain, that actually causes um, you to feel, of course, more pain. And, um, you know, and, and it just, it, it doesn't help the overall well-being. Because pain is a vicious cycle. So it's, pain, there's physical pain, mm -hmm. there's psychosocial pain, you know, uh, then there you have um, physical pain, psychosocial pain, you have environmental pain. So there's a, there's a facet, there's a pain model that includes uh, all those um, within that, you know, within that sector. So pain is not just physical, it comes with, there's an emotional component, social component, um, and it all affects the patient. Wow. So earlier um, you mentioned, you defined, you helped us define chronic pain by saying it's generally pain that'll last longer than three months. Um, Correct. I know people who take Motrin or uh, acetaminophen uh, who've been taking it for years, you know, just for back pain here and there. So it seems to me that, you know, these, whatever pain, these people are experiencing, 
it's beyond, it's much longer than three months. So what are some signs that a patient should maybe stop taking, you know, the Tylenol or the Motrin and actually go in and have a conversation with their doctor? Uh, you know, what are some things that should tell them that, hey, maybe, you know, you're, 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 you know, you're taking a Tylenol a day uh, isn't necessarily the best approach for this? So, so a few things. One, if, if so some red flags would be like, if you have, if the patient has pain that's associated with, with um, like weight loss, okay? Pain associated with weight loss, fever, and chills. That's, that's a big red flag. Because once I hear that, I'm thinking of, and they're taking Tylenol, Motrin, nothing is helping. Once I hear that, I'm thinking immediately there might be some other pathology going on. And the first pathology that comes to my mind is something like cancer, okay? Because, mm -hmm. of course, cancer is associated with weight loss. Patients have fevers. They have chills in the morning. And they may have other, other systemic signs as well in addition to their pain. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing uh, would be if they're taking, you know, again, taking a lot of Motrin is not good either. So if you're taking a lot of Motrin or ibuprofen, over time that eats up your GI system and you start having, you might start having blood in your stool. So, ulcers. you know, ulcers and such. So that's, that's not good. Mm -hmm. um, also, Motrin has been shown to be a culprit for patients with, you know, chronic renal insufficiency. So you got to watch out for taking so much Motrin because it could take a hit on your kidneys. Mm -hmm. Um, also, if you have a history of high blood pressure, okay, taking a lot of Motrin can constrict the vessels and could increase your blood pressure even further. So now your blood pressure becomes uncontrolled. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, that could lead to other issues such as heart attack, strokes, et cetera, and any sort of end organ damage. Uh, so if you're taking Motrin and you have consistently and you have other comorbidities such as chronic high blood, you know, high blood pressure, um, other systemic diseases, just be mindful. And especially if your pain is not resolved and you're still taking Motrin, uh, you got to be careful. Uh, so those, those are the things I'll be looking out for. Also, the other thing to look out for is if you have something as simple as back pain and you're taking Motrin, and it's not resolved at any point in time, you start having weakness down your legs. So weakness down the weakness down the legs or down the arms or in any sort of extremity would indicate that there's some sort of nerve, like a nerve, uh, nerve injury. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yes, sir. It's something more something more serious. So um, maybe there's nerve or spinal cord injury, you know, injury within the spine. So those are things that uh, need immediate attention from the from the pain management physician, or perhaps even the neurosurgeon or orthopedic spine surgeon. Thank you for that. So this hypothetic patient we're discussing decides to stop taking Motrin because of all the factors, side effects that you just listed, and wants to go in and come in your office and you know discuss pain management with you. What tips? you know, can you give us, can you give the layman, um, you know, who wants to then go in and discuss pain management with their doctor, such as yourself, what tips can you give them? What information do you want them to have or, um, you know, before coming in 
or you know what should they um how, how does a normal visit what does a normal visit look like when they first come into to your office so the normal visit when a patient first comes into my office it involves of course you know there's an intake form the intake form includes their history their, their complaints history of present illness any um any medical problems that may they may have um so i do a and then i do a complete pain assessment which includes uh, the, how long they've had the pain, quality of their pain, duration of their pain, the type of pain they have, um, any systemic signs associated with their pain, like I mentioned with a fever, weight loss, any uh, red, other red flags such as you know weakness in the extremity, or and then I I, I also ask them about you know, what they've done in the past and mentioned their pain, physical therapy, any exercise regimen, um, have they had any imaging, MRI, x-rays done, um, and if they've had any pain treatment in the past. Good. Um, let's pivot a little bit into uh, women's health. Um, I know that uh, you also do epidurals, am I right? Yes. So uh, according to, to statistics, 68% uh, of women um, actually get an epidural uh, when giving birth for the very first time. Um, how can they, or what advice would you give women to you know, better prepare themselves for, for, for this procedure? Huh. Uh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I think the best advice to give anyone uh even a, you know, a woman regarding a procedure is to first educate themselves regarding the preoperative what's what's necessary pre-op and what's necessary post-op meaning after the procedure and just set you know what the expectations are so but when it comes specifically to epidurals um one of the things i yeah, that's that's that stands out it's that uh i know some some patients might be on some medications such as blood thinners uh such as you know especially some pregnant patients may be on lovenox so they need to stop that uh depending on the dose of the lovenox either 12 hours or 24 hours prior to the epidural and um i always tell you know for the pregnant patients that are coming straight from home they have to make sure they're well hydrated very well hydrated because Epidurals, once you place an epidural and you inject the medication into that epidural, into that space in the back for labor and delivery, these patients oftentimes their blood pressure, um, their blood pressure will drop significantly. And they may need, they may need some sort of medic, they need they may need medication to keep up their blood pressure. So staying hydrated um, helps avoid a significant drop in blood pressure. Okay. Now, are there any long-term ramifications for the procedure itself, the epidural procedure? Is there something that, you know, uh, or, you know, do most women uh, recover from the procedure pretty fairly? Most women recover from the procedure pretty fairly. Uh, no, I've had patients that, that they've had, they've gone through a labor and delivery, they've had epidurals, and then they come into my office about a year or two later and they say, Oh my God, you know, ever since the epidural, they've been having a lot of back pain. 
It's not from the epidural. Likely, more than likely, it's from pregnancy. Um, so pregnancy stretches the veins within the sacral plexus. The sacral plexus meaning the, the arteries. The, I'm sorry, the nerves within the sacral plexus. The sacral plexus meaning the nerves within the pelvic and spine re, lower lower spine region. So and especially um, pregnant patients are they have a high incidence of sacroiliac joint pain. Because as the baby grows within the womb, your sacroiliac joint, which is the joint that joins your lower portion of your spine to your pelvis, that joint typically it's fixed. But over time with pregnancy, you know, the baby grows and the joint stretches out. And oftentimes patients post-pregnancy that complain of back pain, they usually have uh, SI joint pain. And there, there are ways we could manage those type of patients. And so as we're talking about, you know, nerves and everything, what about scoliosis? I think that's something um, that's often associated with, with uh, pregnancy, am I right? Yeah, scoliosis uh, can be associated with pregnancy. Uh, well, scoliosis is actually, it's very difficult to treat. Um, patients who have scoliosis, typically are patients who, most patients have congenital the patients with scoliosis are congenital, meaning they are born with it. Um, and over time with pregnancy, it actually makes it worse. It makes it difficult. And they get more back pain during those episodes. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. So let's uh, leave that space a little bit and go into uh, neuropathy a little bit. Right now in the United States, uh, 31 million Americans are diabetic with a further 88 million that are considered pre-diabetic. And I think what that means is that they are considered high risk, medium to high risk for developing neuropathies. Um, how do you generally care for nerve pain, especially as it pertains to the extremities? Yeah, good question. So nerve pain is, is difficult to treat. Um, there are ways we can manage nerve pain. Um, you know, patients that have nerve pain typically are diabetic, Nerve pain can be due to any sort of spinal cord injury or any sort of injury in the lower extremity. Um, and that, that leads to something we call uh, complex regional pain syndrome. So the way I manage these patients, you know, we have you know, physical therapy helps. So physical therapy using what's called desensitization technique. So desensitization technique entails so we're desensitizing the extremity. So the way it works is the therapist applies gradual pressure at increasing intervals over time to the extremity. And by applying gradual pressure, uh, there is a desensitization um, that tricks the nerve over time and also tricks the brain actually um, that you know that that nerve pain, that numbness, that burning sensation—it's no longer painful. Um, so that's that. The other technique is using medication. So medications such as gabapentin, uh, Lyrica. There's some antidepressants that we use to manage pain, such as Cymbalta, and all these medications actually work pretty well. Um, but the goal with these medications is to—they don't work immediately. So Patients oftentimes get frustrated. So we need to, again, educate patients, counsel them, 
set expectations. Um, most of these medications take at least up to six weeks to reach therapeutic level. Mm. And you just have to follow through over time and see how these patients are doing and just set reasonable goals and expectations so you know they don't get frustrated. Good point. And now uh, there are about a hundred million work-related illnesses, millions of injuries each year in the United States. So for someone who experienced, you know, worksite injury or, or something along those lines, how do you generally, what is the process when they show up at your office? So the process first, before they make an appointment to see me for work-related injuries, um, these patients have to have some sort of, I'm sure their job itself have some sort of insurance. They also need to have, they have an adjuster that manages the claim. Uh, so I contact the adjuster. Uh, then they also, they, most of them have, um, sometimes we have a nurse that serves as an uh, intermediary between myself and the adjuster to, to sort of keep track of the patients. Sometimes this nurse follows the patient to my office during the assessment to kind of see how things are going, things how things are progressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes these patients will need a functional capacity evaluation for work to see based on the type of job duties and what they do and see if they're fit and ready to go back to work. Because ultimately the goal for a lot of these patients is for them to return back to work. So my goal as the pain physician is to make sure that my treatment protocol is tailored towards um, faster recovery so patients can return back to work. Thank you for that. And with that, Dr. Stanley Kezi, I want to thank you for joining us here on the Self-Care Forum podcast. Uh, before we wrap up and go to q and I want to give you the last word, um, as well as give you the opportunity to uh, promote yourself. How can we reach you if we wanted to work with you? Um, where can we find you? Are you on social media? Um, by all means, you have the floor, Doc. So uh, again, NYC Pain Relief Medicine. Uh, my office is located on 188-18 Linden Boulevard, St. Albans, New York. Uh, if you want the, to make an appointment or a consultation, you may call 718-400-PAIN. So 718-400-7246. We're open from Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. We provide you with multimodal services when it comes to managing your pain. And most importantly, we accept all major insurances, including workers' comp and no fault. So if you're involved in a motor vehicle accident and you have pain concerns, feel free to reach out to us. If you have a work-related injury and you have any pain concerns, feel free to reach out to us. You could also reach out to us on our website, www.nycprg.com, nycprg.com. And there's a link on the, on, the front, on the first page on the website, and you can actually book an appointment on that link. And you're also on social media, on Instagram, correct? Yes, I'm on Instagram. Uh, it's nycprg underscore 22. So it's nycprg underscore 22 on Instagram. All right. And on Facebook, we're NYC Pain Relief Medicine on Facebook. Okay. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Casey, for taking the time out of your busy day and joining us. We're going to stop recording right now, and we're going to go into Q&A.